Election time is here, America. You may have heard that Michelle Obama visited NC State on Tuesday, or at least had to deal with the traffic. I went to the rally where she spoke, and I'm going to highlight what she said in this segment and how it relates to the importance of voting in this election. But first, I cannot stress enough how important it is that everyone votes. I do not care who you are voting for, but please take the time to register and get out there. During the rally, Mrs. Obama mentioned how in 2008, her husband won our state and then later lost the state of North Carolina in 2012 by just a few votes. What was the first lady's point? That you can actually make a difference. And as she urged the crowd during the rally, please don't be lazy or duck down for this one. It is important, regardless of your political alignment. Especially for us, the college students, this election can affect if we will have reliable health care, the wages and reproductive rights of women, student debt, and the racial climate of our futures. I'm going to end this section with a very powerful quote from the First Lady during the rally. Elections are not about who votes, but about who doesn't vote. So now you know, if you didn't already, that you need to vote. But if you're not registered, how do you go about this? If you're a college student, people are waiting to register you around every corner. If you're not, they are present at many public events. An easier way to register is to Google the registration form, print it out, and mail it to the Secretary of State. Two caveats. One, please make sure you do this by October 14th, and that's less than 10 days away. Two, go online and check that you're actually registered. I thought I was, and I checked for good measure and found out I was not. You can check your registration status at vt.ncsbe.gov under the NC Public Voter Search. Now let's talk about early voting. Any registered voter can vote during early voting, which starts on October 20th. Please bring a valid ID, which can be any of the following, a driver's license or state ID, US passport, employee ID, student ID, military ID, utility bill, bank statement, or anything with your name and address on it. For those of you using an absentee ballot, another crucial date for you is November 1st. All absentee ballots must be received by November 1st. Finally, let's end by discussing where you can vote around campus. You can vote on campus at the Creative Services Center, which is right off of Varsity Drive. And around NC State, there are various locations like Pullen Park, right by campus. I'd like to conclude this segment by once again reminding you to vote. Do everything you can in this election to be informed and to do your part as an American citizen. I'm Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. KNC listeners, this is Brooke. Thanks for joining us here on Arts Afternoons. Today I have Zachary Lund here getting his MFA in Fiction and Creative Writing. Zachary, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, of course. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into writing? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. I, you know, as a, as a kid, I was always interested in stories and would write little you know, uh, little short stories, you know, science fiction and fantasy mostly. And I was always a big reader, uh, but kind of got away from writing for a long time. And 
A few years ago, um, on a whim, I just decided to enter a contest that was a paid contest and ended up winning and thought, hey, this is pretty great that I can, you know, make some money doing this. Um, and, and then kind of put it away and uh, the next year I entered that same contest and won again. And that's kind of when I realized I had, you know, some degree of talent with it and also that I really enjoyed doing it. Um, and so since then I've kind of, you know, never looked back and have been uh, you know, writing a lot. So and that's what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm doing. Nice, that's awesome. Definitely very inspiring story. It's nice to know that some people can make money doing writing and freelance jobs and stuff. <laughs> very little. Yeah, yeah, so far. So far. <laughs> All right, big things ahead, I'm sure. All right, so did you want to tell us uh, anything little about the piece you're reading today? Sure. Uh, this story is called Guts, and it is about a working-class Southerner um, who has a uh, you know, complex marital situation and is um, kind of struggling with that. And uh, um, he sees this building on the side of the road that kind of makes him think about his life. <laughs> and 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 so that we, it kind of goes from there. And uh, all right, very interesting. We'll take it away whenever you're ready. Great. Ben pulled off the highway and parked in front of the aged double wide. Its off-white siding was dirty and smattered with sickly browns and greens, vines and mud, filth. He turned his head and looked at the hand-painted sign on the side of the highway, complete with brown, blocky lettering, colon therapy. Depictions of what looked like a hairdryer and a waffle maker filled in the empty space and they did not seem to match up at all with the idea of an alternative medicine shack on the side of a rural North Carolina highway. Ben remembered the first time he had noticed the place. He had told his wife about it as soon as he got home from work at the chicken factory, but Karen hadn't believed him. She told him it was a misspelling or a mistake and that there's no way the health department would allow a place like that to operate. Ben knew he hadn't been fooled and that the health department doesn't have any real power, but he wasn't in particular need of a colon cleanse or whatever else goes on there, so he never looked into it. But he drove by the place every day, and he thought about it all the time, especially after nights that he was kept awake having sex or arguing with Karen. He got out of the car and squinted through the setting sun at the trailer, then walked up the wooden steps and pulled the screen door open. Ben tapped on the door three times. He wasn't timid about it. He had waited long enough to know what this place was and what it did to people, but he hoped his knock didn't give away his sense of urgency. He waited another minute before knocking again. No one was home, or they were too busy inside. He thought about walking around to the back of the trailer and trying to get a peek through a window, but something didn't feel right about that. Whoever they were, he was positive they were doing noble, necessary work, so he resolved to come back tomorrow. Besides, Karen was staying overnight in Charlotte for a work thing. The house was empty and still, and he had all night to think about what he would ask these people when they let him inside. He got home and went straight to the fridge for a beer. He popped the top with the bottle opener from the silverware drawer and walked into the bedroom, the apartment was small, but he and Karen didn't have much stuff. She liked limiting any attachment to material objects. So they had simple furniture and food and toilet paper. Essentials. 
Ben sat on the edge of their bed and sipped the beer. He held the bottle on his knee and looked at the label. It featured a photograph of an old push broom. It unnerved him. Work had been especially brutal today and Ben was glad it was Friday. Left winger, that's what they called him. He stood in line and pulled the left wing off every chicken that came down the belt. Supervisors wanted 80 chickens processed a minute and Ben rarely missed his quota, but he hated it. It was messy and gave him too much time to think. And often those thoughts centered around his eight years of marriage and then immediately to the clinic that he passed every day. He took a look around the bedroom. Karen had even gotten rid of their television set two years ago. He finished his drink quickly. Ben decided to go out for a few minutes before settling in for the night. He went to the kitchen and tossed his empty bottle in the trash. The house phone started to ring, but he ignored it. He knew it was Karen. She would want to talk about work, but he would only be thinking about the therapy shack, how empty it was. Grabbing a fresh can of beer, Ben walked out the front door. The air was chilly as he stepped out of the apartment and down the stairs to the parking lot. He unlocked his car and climbed in, then cracked open his beer can and took a deep drink. He put the can in his cup holder and started the engine. The bar was close, only three minutes away, right around the corner. He pulled out of his spot and slowly made his way over the speed bumps that marked the lot, turned out of the apartment complex and down the street toward the bar. The cell phone in his pocket vibrated and he knew it was Karen. He fished it out and looked at Karen's picture on the LCD screen. Ben hit the green button, lifting the phone to his ear. Hi, he said. Hey, baby. Karen's voice had only the slightest hint of Southern in it. She grew up in the city. She was removed from those deep accents that penetrated the more rural areas of North Carolina. I called the house, she said. I'm not home yet. Work was good, he said. He took another drink from his beer and kept the wheel steady with his knees for a second. He wasn't all that interested in her answer. Oh, fantastic. They loved the presentation, and Chad said he was real happy with it, too. I wish I could get home tonight, but there's a brunch in the morning I need to get to. Chad wants me talking to folks and pushing the program. But I'll be home in the evening. Should we go out for dinner? Ben steered his car in front of the bar and parked. He tipped back, he tipped back the beer and finished the can. His mind was on the trailer off the highway. What? He said. Dinner, she said. I haven't eaten yet. I'm just pulling into the house. No, when I get home, she said. Let's go out. We'll make a night of it. Right, tomorrow. You'll be home. Ben looked out the windshield at the flashing open sign above the bar's front door. It was pink and ugly and distracting. Unwelcoming. The exact opposite of its intended purpose. Is Chad there now? There was a quick silence. Ben knew she and Chad were sleeping together. He knew Karen was pretending that he didn't know. They both knew the other knew. Yes, he's right here, she said. Then, are you at the bar? I've got to go, Ben said. Very nice, very nice. Thank you for sharing that with us, Zachary. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, of course. So thank you guys for listening here at WKNC. This has been Arts Afternoons with Brooke, and I hope you guys have a great day. You're listening to 88.1 WKNC. I'm Hunter Ives, reporting for Eye on the Triangle. Bradgelina fans are weeping and paparazzis are cheering 
as world-famous power couple and acting powerhouse Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie announced their divorce last month. Having been separated since the 15th of September, Jolie filed for divorce, citing, quote, irreconcilable differences from her spouse of two and a half years and partner for over 12. Pitt and Jolie first were rumored to have started their famous relationship back in 2004 during the filming of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, a film that both Angelina and Brad starred in. This did not come without controversy, though, as during that time, Brad Pitt was married to actress and former Friends star Jennifer Aniston. After his divorce from Aniston, Jolie and Pitt were dating until their official engagement in 2012, waiting to actually wed until 2014. Following the divorce announcement during an interview with CNN, Brad Pitt stated, quote, I am saddened by what happened, but what matters most now is the well-being of our kids. Representatives of Jolie have released similar statements sharing those same thoughts. However, though both parties have gone on record claiming a need for a, quote, cordial breakup, it seems unlikely this will be the case. Jolie is seeking sole physical custody of her and Pitt's children, Maddox, Pax, Zahara, Shiloh, and twins Vivian and Knox, while only wanting Pitt to possess legal custody. In layman's terms, Angelina Jolie wants their children to live exclusively with her and no longer have Brad Pitt contribute to the raising of their children, a move which is uncommon in most high-profile celebrity divorces. According to celebrity divorce lawyer Nina Tonka, quote, it suggests there was some incident or series of incidents that made Angelina think to question his parenting. It's a very aggressive move for someone who has co-parented in the way this family has been accustomed to. This divorce is one of a string of high-profile celebrity divorces in these past couple months, with actor Johnny Depp and his wife, actress Amber Heard, also filing for divorce this year. As one of the many people who keep track of celebrity news and relationships, this entire affair has come as no surprise, as divorces are very common among those living in the spotlight. To those celeb gossip fans devastated by this separation of what seemed a picturesque, star-studded marriage, have faith. At least Kim and Kanye are still happy. Thank you for listening to 88.1 WKNC. This has been Hunter Ives reporting for Eye on the Triangle. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. How low can you go? Pretty low? Kind of low? How about Super Low, the album of today's review by the band Warehouse? Maybe Rob Low? I'm not great at limbo, but it's been a while since I tried, so maybe I got better by not trying. Who knows? Anyways, today's album is Super Low by Warehouse, as previously stated, and it's an indie garage rock work of about 33 minutes in length. Now, this album came out pretty recently on September 30th and will be soon working its way into the regular WKNC rotation which means it's obviously a pretty decent album. Question is, what do I think about it? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. First things first, who are Warehouse? Hailing from Atlanta, Georgia, Warehouse appears to be a five-piece garage rock band. 
I say appears to be because like almost every other indie rock band, they have very little information about the band itself available. Go figure. At any rate, the lineup consists of Ben Jackson, Alex Bailey, Josh Hughes, Doug Bleichner, Bleich, Bleichner? Bleichner, and Elaine Edenfield on guitar, other guitar, bass, drums, and vocals, respectively. Following their debut in 2014 with the album Tesseract, Super Low is the group's sophomore album, named after a bizarre convenience store slash grocery mart across the street from their apartments. That's about all there is to it. God, it's like indie bands are always comprised of the only people on earth that don't like talking about themselves. It's absurd. At any rate, this album is pretty unique in its sound. I haven't heard a whole lot that sounds like it in recent years, despite the fact that it belongs to a pretty broad subgenre. The most immediate feature of the album is lead singer Edenfield's voice. Like a cross between classic alto female vocalists such as Beth Gibbons of Portishead and modern grunge screamers like Tina Halliday of Sheermag, Edenfield sports a unique set of pipes that go a long way in helping to define the band's sound. She utilizes a heavy, gravelly, and scratchy sound to carry her upper and mid-range while pulling from the diaphragm to create the smooth boom of her lower range. While this style is growing slightly more popular as the garage scene continues to develop, few are able to pull it off with both confidence and competence. Edenfield admirably does both. Outside of vocals, the next thing that stands out about this band is that their sound is rough, but not angry. Most bands in the garage rock subgenre are very aggressive, pushing their message with the furious sincerity of a mean drunk. In the case of bands like Fiddler, that's barely even a metaphor, as half of their songs revolve around intoxication and societal rebellion. In a subgenre where this attitude is the norm, Super Low boasts a sound that is deliberate but not aggressive. It's kind of laid back but not docile in any way. Like the old man on your block that smokes a little too much but has a good heart. Yeah, he spits when he talks and his voice is deep and damaged, but he's got a good set of morals and he'll give you good life advice if you ask. I mean, I didn't actually grow up with one of those guys on my street, but I've seen the stereotype in movies and I feel like it gets the picture across. The instrumentation on the album is nothing to scoff at either. Warehouse takes a low distortion approach here, which is also pretty unique for a garage rock band, making use of relatively clean guitars with a touch of tremolo, medium decay, and a pinch of phaser. The result is pretty similar to the kind of instrumentation used in Chillwave or Surf Rock, but with the backing power of some light distortion on the rhythm guitar in the background, and also far less echo than is typical of those genres. The riffs themselves are pretty good, though they're far less attention-grabbing than the lead vocals, which is a bit of a shame, really, because the guitar on this album can be very enjoyable, and extends the song very well. I won't say it stands out too much, but it's definitely above average. Drums and bass on this album are about average. It's hard to make an impact with those instruments, but I will say the performances from both instrumentalists in those categories are of high enough quality that you couldn't say they're bad in any way, which is an important standard to meet if you're doing your job correctly. The drumming in particular has a noticeable layer of rhythmic complexity that I can appreciate. I don't know if the songwriter should be thanked for that, but I can say that the songs wouldn't have nearly as much backbone without that little bit of finesse. Now, the album isn't perfect, obviously. I think one of the main things to call into question is the lyrical content, which, while retaining a good amount of depth, can occasionally come off as clunky and obtuse when sung. It's the difference between poetry and prose, you know? It has to sound a certain way when you say it. You can't just focus on the message you're trying to get across. Is it jarring? No. It is noticeable, however, and may throw some listeners for a loop. I wanted to use the word sonically obtuse to describe this phenomena, but I also don't want to sound like one of those reviewers from Pitchfork that are so full of themselves that they think they need to refer to the thesaurus for just a couple of sentences in a garage rock review. 
So yeah, lyrics sound a little funny sometimes. This isn't too bad on its own, but with the addition of the odd structure of the verses and the strong focus on the vocal component of the album, it can sort of all come together to bring the album down a little. Despite this, Super Low is an incredibly strong album that does things differently in a good way. The uniqueness of the album outweighs its faults by a ton, making it a must-listen for garage rock fans, at least in my book. My final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7 is positive 5. Above average, very enjoyable, and just plain cool. The album is, once again, Super Low by Warehouse. All of those words are spelled normally, just in case you're wondering. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lens, Plesk, Floatstar, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by sending a tweet to at wknc underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film entitled A Waltz with Basher. A Waltz with Basher is not really like any film I have seen before. It is animated and uses a beautiful style that I can only really describe as cell shaded. This is an aspect of the style, but it goes beyond that. The colors change beautifully through the film and represent the turmoil, peace, and setting at every point. Beside the art style, the method of storytelling is unlike most as well. The movie is essentially a documentary of one man uncovering his forgotten past, which in and of itself is very interesting, but it builds upon this by adding in obscuring hallucinations and dreams that are beautiful and terrible at the same time. A Waltz with Basher has elements of a regular documentary, but the fact that it is an animated film and has these drawn out hallucinations makes it more than that. It gives you a better sense of what the feelings of the main character are and why they make him feel the way that they do. But a lot of times, documentaries can come across as being purely informational. A Waltz with Basher does contain a lot of information, but like I said, the other aspects are what make it great. I had never heard of the Lebanon War before watching this movie. I think I heard a mention of it in an Anthony Bourdain show, but had never looked very far into what the conflict actually was about. A Waltz with Basher is intimately familiar with the struggle of the Lebanon War and explores the various war stories and tragedies that came from it. The movie deals with PTSD for the most part, while our main character is trying to discover what his mind has made him forget, but we also see the struggles of being a leader, a friend, and soldier in times of war. Each story comes with its own speaker and truly gives as accurate a representation of the war as possible as it comes from the mouths of those who lived it. The men have moved on in their lives, but it is obvious that this war has impacted them for the duration of what they have left. The opening scene of the movie is surreal. It starts with a dream that a friend of the main character is having. It is far different from the ones that come later in the film, but it is by far my favorite. It's a scene of dogs running through the city to a destination unknown with action music playing in the background. You get a sense for the seriousness and oddity of the film right from the get-go. The story does not focus on this odd dream for very long either, which makes it seem to me that they used it mainly to set a tone for the film. 
going on in the film, it is sometimes hard to tell what is truth and what is fiction. Most of the flashbacks are so gruesome and surreal in general that you would hope that they would be fictional, but it turns out many are not. This feeling of not knowing what is true is exactly what the director felt as he was making this film, assuming that the events that happened were filmed as they were happening, like in most documentaries. He was searching and finding dead ends and roads that led somewhere, but not where he wanted to go. One more thing I wanted to mention is the animation. Like many, when watching this film, I assumed some sort of rotoscoping was used to create it. Uh, and just in case someone out there doesn't know what rotoscoping is, I'll explain. If you want a film to look real but be animated, oftentimes rotoscoping is used. You essentially film what you want animated and then trace over the top of the film to get animation. The people look real enough in this film to justify this as being rotoscoping, but it turns out that this is not the case. They used a form of animation similar to rotoscoping, but instead of drawings were cut into segments, which were then animated in Adobe Flash. I should also mention that the film does have one portion that is not animated. I mention it mostly because the imagery shown is so graphic and upsetting. I think it was the right choice for the studio not to animate this portion because it emphasizes how real the war was and no one really could make it up if they wanted to. A Waltz with Basher showed me a side of the Middle East I knew existed but really have very little understanding of, and even still after watching this film. The Middle East has been in a state of turmoil for pretty much the entirety of my lifetime, and it's hard to imagine what living in an area like that would be like. Of course, there are peaceful areas in the Middle East where life is probably relatively normal, but they have had wars within recent history, and that changes a population and a country's outlook on life. An interesting side note to this film is that it's banned in Lebanon. Uh, I often wonder why things like this are banned, because stories are stories, and the rest of the world is not going to forget what happened. It seems like it's almost in vain that they try to remove them from the record. I'm going to give this movie a 4.25 out of 5. It's a beautifully constructed telling of the terrible events and... A Waltz with Basher gives insight into the lives of soldiers after their wars have come and gone. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowberated. I'm Jake Winters, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening.